Well, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. It's on page 7 in the church Bibles. Genesis chapter 5. And last week we were working our way through a long list of names. And we're going to focus in on one of them today and actually for the next few weeks because that's what the book of Genesis does. We're going to focus in on Noah. And just before I read, by the way, well done to the students who are here, who've been away on a weekend away. Give us a wave, students. Yep. Very good. Uh, if you drift off, you have... Um, well, it's shocking, to be honest. Don't do that. Because this is the word of God. So uh, let's... Uh, let's... <laughs> let's read. Genesis um, chapter 5. We're going to read um, from verse 28, and then on into chapter 6. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, I want us to start with verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9, where we're introduced to this man, Noah. And look how he's described. I wonder what you make of this. We're told in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people, and he walked faithfully with God. I wonder, what, I wonder if that kind of makes questions rise in your mind. I wonder if you go, hang on, how, what? How does that work? Righteous is talking about his relationship with God. He is in a right relationship with God. Blameless talks about his walk among the people of the day. He's right with God. He's right among the people. Yeah, the, there's the... Um, Sorry, this is really corny, but there's an old j- joke that, um, about the, ske- you know, the, the, 
the scarecrow who won a Nobel Prize. Do we know this? Because he was outstanding in his field. Um, um, the <laughs> Noah, w- tenuous. Noah was <laughs> Noah was outstanding in his generation. There was something different about Noah. He was he stood out. He shone. In fact, you could almost say that in a very dark world, Noah was the light of the world. He was different. Now, many people struggle with this because they go, but I thought everyone was a sinner and I thought everyone was, well, that doesn't make sense. And so people try and explain it away and they go, well, he wasn't really good. He wasn't really this. He was, you know, I want us to take very seriously what this says. Noah was right with God. He was blameless before the people and he walked faithfully with God. And I want to ask this question. How did he do that? How was that true of Noah? Because Noah is put in the Bible so that we can learn how that could be true of us too. So that it could be said of us that we are righteous, blameless, and walk faithfully with God. That's why we called this series Footsteps of Faith. We are... We're looking at people in the Bible who we're told, follow these people, watch what they did, learn from them. You know what it's like when you have a hero, you think, I want to grow up to be like so-and-so, and so you try and copy them, you watch what they do, you follow them, you eat what they eat, you try and be like them, you try and follow in their footsteps. The Bible says, look for people who are faithfully walking with God and follow them. Follow their footsteps. Hebrews chapter 11 sets Noah up as an example for us of faith, of how to live. So I want us, by the end of our time together, to leave this place knowing that that is possible for God to say that about you. But we've got a little bit of work to do to get there. So let's, uh, let's follow this through. That's where we're heading. We're trying to work out how can verse 9 really be true? What does it mean? And we're going to track right back to the start of Noah's life when he was born. And I'm going to show you first that it starts with God's promise. It all starts with a promise about Noah. So come back to Genesis chapter 5. This is why we read from here. We're told about his dad, Lamech. Lamech's 182 years. We're going to get to the age, the kind of long life thing in a minute. Um, I I get that it's weird. Um, Lamech's 182 years and he has a son. But as Noah is born, he speaks these extraordinary words. He says, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. Now look, every dad has unrealistic expectations of their kids, right? That's just part of the territory of going with the dad, as as a dad. Look at your kids and you think, perhaps you're going to grow up to be the one who finds a cure for this, you're going to be some wonderful thing, or you're going to be this great, wonderful. I don't think that's what's happening here, though. When Lamech speaks these words, he is speaking not wishful thinking, dad, rose-coloured glasses speak, He is speaking prophetically. That is, he is speaking words that have been taught him by God. 
He is making a prophecy, a promise about his son that actually comes from God. This is a promise from God about this boy. He is going to be the one who comforts us. Noah was born with a promise hanging over him. And and it's important to see this because Lamech gets it, right? Lamech knows the story of what's happened so far in the Bible. He knows that the world is messed up. The world is painful. You see the language? Painful toil. It's hard, right? Things go wrong. Our dishwasher broke this week. Right? It's rubbish. Got to wash dishes by hand. It's so miserable. Life's so hard. Painful toil. And without being flippant, you know, moving from the flippant, we know what it's like. It's so painful. It's hard. Life is just hard. Lamech knows that life is hard, not because that's just the way it is. Noah knows, uh, Lamech knows that life is hard because this world is under a curse. Because God is angry with this world. And he's placed this world under a curse, which means that work is hard. But God also made the promise right back that there would be one who would be born, a seed of the woman, a child who would be born, who would bring comfort, who would end the curse, who would crush the enemy, and who'd bring relief. That was the promise. And we've been waiting, we've been waiting. Would it be Seth? Would it be, we'd go through all the lists, but we're not going to. Would it be this one? Would it be this one? Would it be this one? And Lamech, when he sees Noah, he speaks this word of promise over his son, this one. There's going to be comfort through this one. Noah is brought up in an atmosphere surrounded by this promise. In fact, every time he hears his name, he's reminded of the promise. Because his name, we're told in the footnotes, sounds like comfort. Every time someone says his name, he's reminded, there's a promise over me. There's a promise. God has made a promise. And so it starts here. How does Abraham get to verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9, to be righteous, blameless, and walking faithfully? Well, it all started not with a- uh, not Abraham. Noah, I'm missing all, everyone. How did Noah end up being righteous and blameless? Well, you've got to trace it back to the promise that God made. It starts there. And when you make a promise to someone, a promise, the right response to promise is what? Faith. It's faith, belief, trust. If I promise you something, I'm asking you to trust me, to put your confidence in me. That's how promises work. If you don't trust me, that means you've not believed my promise, you've not accepted my promise, you've not responded to my promise rightly. And what you do with my promise will show what you think of me. So the right response, Noah's response, Noah's life was to be a life of faith in the promise that God had spoken over him. That would lead him to living different. Now, the reason that this 
section of, uh, of the Bible is here is because it's written, first and foremost, for God's people Israel, who are about to go into the promised land. What did God's promise... What did God's people Israel need to know? They needed to know that God had spoken a promise to them. How did Israel come into existence? By a promise. God said to his people Israel, I will bless you. And you will bring blessing. You will bring comfort to the world. This is how it works. A promise that's responded to by faith. Noah grew up with this promise. Israel was surrounded by this promise. And the promise still stands today. God has made this promise that to whoever believes, he will give comfort and life. But we're going to get to that in a second. Let's hold on to the promise. Noah's received the promise. Here's the second thing we need to see. The second thing is God's heartache. So we're still trying to work out how you get to verse 9. Starts with a promise. Now we're going to look at God's heartache. Now this is the meat of what we're going to do, okay? And we're going to have to walk very carefully. We are going to, uh, we're going to sail into deep waters uh, for a few minutes. Because we're going to sail pretty close to the heart of God. That is holy ground. That is not something you mess around with. So I want to be as careful as I can. I want us to try and engage with this and see what these words say and see what they show us about what God is like. So what's going on in the world then? So here's Noah. He's got this promise. He's growing up. What's going on around him? What's the culture like? Well, we're told what the culture's like. When human beings began to increase in number, on, so the humans are increasing. We normally think that's a good thing. Prosperity, safety in numbers. Hey, aren't we doing well? Things are going well, aren't we? Great. Look at us humans. We're doing great. So the humans are increasing uh, and, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Okay, that's a controversial verse. <laughs> A lot of people have written a lot of books around what that means. Who, okay, it's, not that, it's not difficult to work out what the issue is. Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? What, what, what's it referring to? Okay, let me be really honest. Um, I don't think we can know for sure. Um, there are two big options. I'll show you which one I think is... I would tend to lean towards. There are two big options. The first one is that it's some kind of, that the sons of God are some kind of angelic being, uh, that they're sort of this um, angels who come and uh, marry humans in a kind of cross angel human divide thing. That's one, that's one view. Uh, and that would be because lots of times sons of God is referring to angels and therefore they think it, people think it's that angelic thing. I don't think it can be that for two reasons. One, because Jesus says that angels don't get married um, when he's teaching the Sadducees about resurrection. He says angels don't marry. So I don't think it can refer to angelic beings. And secondly, Jesus refers to this time and let me show you what he said about it. Jesus said, this is in Matthew uh, 24, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, 
marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Jesus says people are getting married, not angels. That's his reading of what is going on in Genesis. Okay, so if it's not angels, what's the other big interpretation? Well, I think the the interpretation that makes sense um, more more sense to me is that the sons of God refer to the line of Seth, the godly line, the line that comes from promise, the line that comes through Seth, and the daughters of men are the line of Cain. And what is happening is that the line that should be worshipping God, that should be calling on the name of the Lord, instead is intermarrying with the line who are opposed to God, and there is this crossing of a boundary going on. Now remember, who was this written for? Who was it first written for? It was written for Israel about to enter the land. What are they going to do when they enter the land? Here are God's special people. They're about to enter the land where there are nations who do not know God. They are going to be tempted to go into the land, see the women, go, for they're nice, let's marry some of them. And God says over and over again, don't do that. You're my people. Don't do that. And so I think what verse 1 and 2 is referring to is to humanity making a choice to say, we want what we want. They, the, the words literally are, they see and they take any that they choose. Ring any bells? Genesis chapter 3, the woman saw and took the fruit. This is just a repeating of the sin. Human beings saying, I will choose whatever I want. They saw that they were beautiful, and so they married them. It's fascinating, isn't it, how often our eyes overrule our minds. How often what we might know to be true is overruled, but what we see and what kind of captivates us. Always makes me think of... uh, this. Do you know who he is? That's a boo from Aladdin. And Aladdin goes into the cave of wonders with his little monkey boo and they're told, touch only the lamp. Bring me the cave, the lamp of wonders. The lamp, no, no the, anyway. Um, touch nothing but the lamp. A boo sees a jewel, a massive red jewel, and he's captivated by it. And he's, as Aladdin's going for the lamp, the lamp looks so boring, who cares about that? A boo sees the jewel and goes for that. And I often think this, this scene in Aladdin, if you've ever seen it, this picture, so often sums up what I find myself doing. Here is stuff that I know is wrong. I know that it's not right. And they go, ooh, hello. And it kind of captivates me. And if you ask me in a rational moment, would I choose? No, no, no. But the women, the, the men... The, daughters, uh, the sons of God see that the daughters of men are beautiful and so they just take them. That's what's going on in the world. And not only that, the Nephilim are on the earth added to all that. <laughs> what a nightmare. Not only is all that going on, the Nephilim are there too. Who let them in? I love these verses. These are really great verses. Again, I think we have this, you know, um, 
I don't think we need to get too freaked out about the Nephilim and, and confused. I don't think it's that difficult. We're told who they are. Um, the Nephilim, it's not that there's some kind of crossbreed of angel, human kind of giant things. They're just the heroes. They're the kind of superpowers. They're the celebrities. They're the A-listers of the day. They're the ones who had all the power, all the money, all the wealth. They're the ones who got to say what was the, the shots. They're, they were the heroes of old. The ones everybody talked about. And so you have this world that God made, which has become obsessed with choice, I get what I want, and power, where the strong win. But God has been completely forgotten. I now live whatever I want, I will do whatever I want, whatever I choose, and we will celebrate power and celebrity and hero. I don't think that's very different to London. <laughs> the Nephilim in London. Where we're told all the time, just take whatever you want. Take, see what, go for whatever your eyes desire. But I, we're going to see now that to live like that cause God, causes God pain. This is where we go into deep water. To live our lives as if we're the center of everything. As if it's about our choice and whatever I want. I'll take whatever I can see. And it's about me getting as much power as I can and making a name for myself and being someone of renown. To live that way does something powerful in God. So pick it up from verse 3. Have a look at what we're told. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. There is this conflict between God and humanity now. And God says, You know what? It's not going to go on. I'm going to restrict it. You know, they used to live for 900 years back in chapter 5. Not anymore. 120 years. That's going to be the kind of the maximum lifespan now. 120 years, I'm going to restrict it. But let's face it, 120 years, that's pretty generous still. God gives 120 years for people to hear about him and to stop living their own way and to turn to him. But he says that it's not going to go on forever. And so those who set themselves up against God, they don't live forever. Jump down to verse 5. I think these are extraordinary verses. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. That every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's what God saw. As he looked down in Noah's days, he looked down on the earth and he looked everywhere. All he could see was hearts that were only evil all the time. Inclined that way. Not just behavior. God can see right into the heart. He can see right into our hearts. And he sees hearts that are inclined away from him. I wonder if you think that's still true today. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? Do you think it's still true today that the, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time? Sounds a bit mean. That verse is not saying that all the actions are mean. It's not saying that all the actions are sinful. 
It's not saying that humanity can't do some good, but it is saying that deep within our hearts, we have a heart that is set away from God and towards evil. Towards what I want, towards me and power. And that is our default. That is the way we go. And the rest of the Bible backs this up. We don't like this. We like to be told that we're good. We like to be told that we're nice people. We like to be told, yeah, yeah, feel good. You know, let's all have a nice time. But actually the reality is we incline towards evil. That's where our hearts, the thoughts of our hearts are heading. And so verse 6 says that the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. I can I say, if you think the Nephilim verse is hard, that is much harder. <laughs> what does it mean that God regretted that he'd made human beings? Is that like God going in heaven going, oh, bother, I wish I'd never done that. I didn't realize this was all going to go like, this is a mess, why did I ever do that? That's what I'm like when I regret something. You know, when I go for a run and I get halfway around and I regret it, what I mean is I wish I'd never done this. (laughs) God does not mean I wish I'd never done this. Okay. We need to think about what we think of God, who we think God is. What do you think God is? Who do you think, how do you picture him? Is he a God of anger or is he a God of love? How do you picture him? But there's the problem. <laughs> right there. Not in what you're thinking, but in my question. Come on, think. What's wrong with my question? Is he a God of anger or is he a God of love? The problem with the question is we think that you can't be both. We think that those two things are in opposition to one another. And they're not. Or we think that those things, we, we try and imagine, okay, well, if God's a bit like me, you know, sometimes I'm loving and sometimes I'm angry. No. Okay, let me, here's a bit of theology for you, okay? God is simple. The simplicity of God, you may never have heard of before, but it is mind-blowingly important. Just check this out for one minute. Give me one minute, okay, just to explain this, because it's, is very, changes how you view God. The simplicity of God. When I say that God is simple, um, it's not about his intelligence. It's about the way that he operates, his characteristics. So I am not simple. I mean, there are many ways I am. But in this one situation, I'm not simple. I have all sorts of different emotions that all compete with one another. Sometimes I'm loving and sometimes I'm patient and sometimes I'm angry and sometimes I'm rude. All sorts of different things. You never know quite which jaunty you're going to get. With God, simplicity means that God is all of his attributes all of the time. So God never does something just out of love. Because that's as if he's not at that moment acting in justice. No, his justice is always loving and his love is always just. Right? You can't look at things in the Bible, well, at this point, he's being a bit mean, but at this point, he's really showing his love. 
God is all of his attributes all of the time. He is simple. Okay, well let's now use that to to come to these verses. Because if he's simple and he's all his attributes all the time, that means he doesn't ever change. That is, he's immutable. Okay, I told you we'd do some big stuff, right? He's simple and he's immutable. He's unchanging. He doesn't change. He doesn't get to a point where he suddenly goes, oh, I've changed my mind about me making human beings. I really shouldn't have done that. We used to sing this great song, a a kid's song, by Colin Buchanan that says, God never says oops. That's a great song. It's a great line. God never says oops, never slips up, never makes a mistake, right? Why? Because he's not like me. He doesn't change. Therefore, in chapter 6, he's not going, oops, shouldn't have done that. So what is God doing? What God is doing is he is expressing the pain, yes, the actual pain, that he chose, he willingly chose to bear when he set about creating the universe. It was always his intention and his purpose. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit... We're in perfect, content relationship with one another. And they chose to create a world. And in creating the world, they made the choice to make the possibility of suffering, pain, sorrow. And so what God is expressing in verse 6 is he's expressing the pain that he is experiencing, the pain that he knows because of the choice he's made to create the world. It's not like he's changed. Now, from our perspective, sometimes it does appear that God changes. So he... Sometimes sometimes we might be tempted to think that, but that's like the moon, right? Think of the moon... Sometimes the moon is like that is a circle shape and sometimes it's a moon shape. <laughs> the moon hasn't changed. It hasn't changed at all. But our experience of the moon changes. And so when someone, for example, becomes a Christian, they go from experiencing God's anger to experiencing his love. But God hasn't changed. It's just your experience of God has changed. Okay, let's try and handle this. So, we're told in verse 6 that God is deeply troubled and regrets. He experiences this sorrow, this pain. That means you must never think of God as being some hard-hearted ogre who sits in heaven completely unmoved, going squish, squish, squish. Like in... um, the, the uh, Almighty, Evan, uh, uh, whatever it's called, Bruce Almighty, when he goes, smite me, O thou mighty smiter. He says, God, you just want to squish me. We must never think of God as that. He is a God whose heart aches for the creation that he's made. But don't flip, right? Don't now flip and think, and therefore God is weak. Poor little God sitting in heaven, miserable, miserable God. No. God is not 
weak because he is the God who knows and always knew and is in control. And he is the God who acts to fix and to sort the issue that he sees that brings him pain. And that's why he says in verse 7, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. But I regret that I have made them. These are deep and important verses for us to understand the nature of God. He is neither unmoved and unpassionate, neither is he weak and smile at sin. He's the God who's loving and feels and suffers and yet deals with sin because he must. This is our God. The God who is always loving and always just and therefore he will punish sin and his punishment is loving because he's always loving. But he will punish. And that brings us to the last point. And that's God's favour. How did Noah, if you remember, remember the question, it was a long time ago. How did Noah end up in verse 9 being a righteous man? We've seen the promise that surrounded Noah. We've seen the heartache that was going on all around Noah. But verse 8, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favour. Out of all of humanity, God's favour rested on this one man. Not because Noah was so awesome, but because of the promise that God had made. Because God is so committed to his creation. Because God always promised he was going to send someone to bring comfort in the distress. And God says, it's this one, it's Noah. And so God says, his grace, his favor finds Noah. It's the first example of the word grace in the Bible. And you suddenly discover that Noah is a righteous man, blameless among the people, and walking faithfully with God because of God's promise and because of his grace. Here's a man who trusts God's promise. And in a world that is despising God, in a world that's turning its back on God, here is a man who's kept his eyes on God, on God's promise. He says, I'm going to keep trusting you. I'm going to walk faithfully with you. And so this one man experiences God's grace and is given righteousness. Is called blameless. He walks faithfully with God. Do you think Noah would have been different to the world? Yes, absolutely. He would have stood out. But he stood out because he bore God's grace. And we're going to watch in the coming weeks how God carries Noah through judgment. We'll see that next week. But for now, I want you to know from this section that human wickedness causes God's pain God pain but in the midst of that there is grace and favor for those who will hear his promise and the promise that was spoken to Noah is the promise that was spoken to Israel is the promise that was spoken to Jesus as Jesus is born to be the one who brings true comfort in the distress. And Jesus, the one who lived in a world that was wicked, he lived faithfully before his God, perfectly, the perfect righteous man. Jesus, the one at the cross where you see God's love and his justice meet 
as God punishes sin and yet sets people free. So as we look at Noah, I I, want to challenge you with two questions as we finish. One, are you trusting the promise? God has made a promise that if you trust him, he will give you righteousness. He will smile upon you. He will give you blessing. And if you're trusting the promise, are you walking differently? Are you distinct in this generation? Are you living for God, living to honor him, living to worship him? Has God's grace found you like it found Noah? And will you live in the light of it? Why don't we pray together and ask that God would teach us um, to live this way. Just take a moment to um, take a moment to think of what God has showed us about Himself. Think of all the wickedness, all the ways in which we've grieved His heart. Take a moment to thank him. Thank him that there is righteousness. There is this life. We can walk blamelessly before him because of his promise, because of his grace, and ultimately because of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're not like us. Thank you that you're not one thing one day, another thing the next, but you are always, all of your attributes all the time, you're always loving, you're always just, you're always good. Father, we, we thank you that your heart is grieved at wickedness. We thank you that you rightly punish sin. But we thank you that in the midst of that judgment, your grace brings life and comfort. Help us to trust you more, we pray. Amen.